Today, we welcome Caroline Underwood OBE and Philip Markovici, who are both Ispahani advisory experts. As vice chair of UNICEF UK, Caroline works with philanthropists, senior leaders, and organizations with a common vision to shift the needle on philanthropic giving and creating meaningful giving opportunities between donors and those they support. Philip Markovici is retired from the practice of law and consults with governments, financial institutions and global families in relation to tax and wealth management. Philip is the author of the renowned book, The Destructive Power of Family Wealth. And in this session, Caroline and Philip will discuss women's financial empowerment, taking a holistic approach. I'm Caroline Underwood and I'm delighted to be talking to you today on behalf of Isbahani Advisory. We're going to talk about women's empowerment in relation to wealth and uh, we're going to discuss some of the challenges that women around the world face in thinking about wealth management. Women of all ages, whether you're a daughter, a sister, a wife, a, a mother, a grandmother, need to consider the wealth of the family in relation to themselves. I'm going to be in discussion with Philip Markovici, who's a senior advisor for Isbahani Advisory. And Philip is an expert on these matters, sometimes provocative, uh, always expert. I'm delighted to uh, be talking to Philip about his work, his research, and indeed the book he has written around this area. So let me bring Philip into, into the discussion straight away. Philip, why is this an issue for women around the world? Thanks, Caroline. Um, as you mentioned, uh, one of the things that I've done uh, over the years, uh, I was a practicing lawyer in uh, Hong Kong, in Switzerland, in the United States, and also in Canada, focusing on tax and uh, wealth planning and trusts and all of these areas. Uh, about 10 years ago, I retired from uh, practicing law, focusing more on teaching and working with a few families around the world. And one of the areas that uh, has really come to light for me is the reality that wealth is destructive of families and family relationships. Uh, that led me to write a book about the destructive power of family wealth. And a number of the themes in that book have to do with what we're going to be discussing uh, today. And uh, the topic we're discussing today is women's empowerment, how important it is within families for there to be communication about wealth. And uh, we only have a few minutes really to uh, give our comments uh, today. Uh, but accompanying this session will be a set of PowerPoints that go through a number of details on what it is that we're discussing, uh, a comprehensive case study that we often use when we're working with families on what we call continuity audits that are really looking at how families own their wealth, how they're transitioning that wealth, protecting that wealth uh, for future generations. And we hope these tools are going to be useful for those uh, who are listening in uh, on our uh, discussion. But I'd like to just start out uh, by confirming what you said, Caroline, and that is there's a huge need for women in particular to understand their rights, their financial position. And one of the reasons that this is so, so important is because women always end up with the money, one way or the other. They end up with the money because it happens uh, in the event of divorce, it happens when women uh, are generating their own wealth, but most importantly, women live longer than men. And as a result, they will always end up 
with the money. Let me stop you there, Philip, because why I absolutely uh, take your point that women always end up with the money. But why is advice for women different to the financial advice that men are receiving? And why do you think that women need to understand their financial position in a particular way? Good question that you're asking, because actually both need to understand very well. Uh, the needs of wealth owners and business owners are very broad, but these needs are really latent needs. In other words, they have needs, but they don't know what those needs are. And as a result, both men and women need to learn the right questions to be asking. Nobody has all the answers, but you need to be able to raise the right questions. Now, why do women need a little bit more of that coaching? Well, sadly, in my experience of working with families around the world, and this crosses cultures, there is a bit of a tendency to leave it to the man. And there is a tendency in men to think that they can do this kind of stuff better, which is just not true. I recognize what you're saying. I also um, slightly challenge what you're saying. As you know, we all know the world is full of smart women. Um, and do you think this is still prevalent? Do you think there are cultural differences? Um, and do you think there's generational differences about the kind of advice that people need? I do recognize that there, of course, has been massive progress made in terms of equality of men and women. Uh, I absolutely see many women who understand phenomenally their own financial position. However, I still run across in every culture that I work with, and I don't see it as a cultural issue uh, so much. I see it as a, a real um, common situation that women tend to sometimes not know uh, as much about their family's financial affairs as they really need to. And, um, you know, I, I, I just see that as a reality. I've seen many situations in divorces. I've seen situations of women financially being taken advantage of and uh, women who end up outliving their partners uh, being in a situation where they become over-reliant on advisors. And again, rather than being in a position to really ask the right questions, they don't need all the answers. They really need to have a certain level of knowledge about their financial affairs and the financial affairs of their family. Um, that's something I just see all too often. And how does that relate to succession planning and planning within the family and thinking about one's, as a woman, thinking about one's own children and grandchildren? Well, I think the first thing that I like to say to families that I work with is that no plan is a plan. In other words, if you don't have a succession plan, that is a plan. What do I mean by that? Uh, if something happens to you and you haven't done your planning, um, there are laws and rules that are going to dictate who is going to end up with the assets, who is going to end up with power over the assets. And as a result, the first step for anyone is to understand fully their own financial position and the structures that are in place and to understand fully what's going to happen if there were a divorce, what's going to happen if I passed away, who's going to have power over my assets. What's going to happen in terms of assets that may be coming from my parents? Where are those assets going to go? What power does my husband have in relation to those assets? So the first step is really understanding exactly the plan that you have. And linked to this is something that I view as one of the most serious issues facing uh, families around the world, and that is changing demographics. People are living much, much longer today 
than they lived in the past. It used to be people would die in their 70s, early 80s. Now people are living to 100, 110. It's great. It's great that they live so long. But this transforms the whole issue of succession. Should a child wait until they're 85 years old to inherit from their parents? What happens if their parents pass away and the children have predeceased because of illness or otherwise? Suddenly grandchildren are getting assets perhaps at too young an age where they're getting power over those assets. Uh, all of these issues are coming up for, for families and also the reality that as people get older, um, we suffer memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's. This is just a natural part of the aging process and this also comes into the whole area of asset protection and understanding uh, your situation. The other area that I was thinking about when we were when we were talking about today was, you know, most families are messy. Um, uh, actually, most families, not many families, have a mixture of uh, relationships with their in-laws. They may have step brothers and sisters and parents involved, or there may indeed be, you know, other relationships going on within the family, perhaps even affairs or other things that are, are going on. How on earth does one start to navigate financial planning, particularly if you're a woman in that situation, through the complex families that we, most of us live in today? Every family gets very, very messy. And part of the work that, uh, that we do with families often is to try to navigate these things by raising the right questions. Uh, sometimes uh, doing this kind of work involves family retreats where we have individual interviews with each family member to really try to understand what's really, really going on. One question that often uh, I'm asked is, uh, Philip, how do I know if my son or my daughter is marrying a gold digger? How do I know whether the boyfriend or the fiance of my daughter is a gold digger? How do I know whether the new partner I'm about to marry is a gold digger. It, it's a hard question for many families, but what I say is hope for the best and plan for the worst. I mean, sadly, you paint probably a, a reality picture, although, uh, you know, I hope that we come out of this talk concluding in some way that love and optimism uh, out, outrank um, the skepticism, but I completely take your point about the need for financial planning. And then in extreme cases, of course, there is divorce um, and indeed second, third, fourth marriages and uh, the complexity of planning uh, around that, and particularly, as you say, for women, whether they're the ones holding the money already or whether they're the ones marrying into the money. Is that something you come across much in your work? You know, what I say, and I was giving, a, again, a talk uh, with a friend of mine who's a top divorce lawyer in the world, and I said to the families who were in the audience, I said, divorce is the biggest destroyer of wealth in the world. And my friend jumped up and she said, Philip is lying, it's not true. Divorce is the biggest creator of wealth in the world. Now, why did she say that? She said that because she often acts for the spouses who are looking to grab the money. And what families need to understand is around the world, there are divorce laws that can destroy a family business. It's not only assets within the family that in a number of countries like the UK, uh, are subject to a 50-50 division. It's also the assets that are inherited if they're not protected in the right way when they're transitioning from the older generation to the younger. And so we need to understand that. And coming into it is the role of prenuptial agreements, postnuptial agreements, in other words, the agreements that you enter into before a marriage. And what I say to the families that I work with is 
don't wait to talk about a prenuptial agreement until your son or daughter comes home holding hands with the love of their life. And you say to your daughter when she says, oh, this is Henry, this is, uh, this is the guy I'm going to marry, uh, you don't then say to your daughter, uh, excuse me, can we go talk in the kitchen for a minute? You take your daughter to the kitchen and you say, let's talk about prenups. Your daughter is then going to relate that conversation to the parent's judgment of what they think of the love of their life that they have just brought home. What I'm a great believer in is you have these conversations with the younger generation well before there's any specific person that they brought home to, to introduce to mom and dad. And by doing that, they begin to understand the importance simply of having an economic discussion before marriage. It's just right that a married couple should have discussed, are we going to be treating our assets together? Are we going to be able to use each other's credit cards? How is this all going to work? And that way you avoid, through this kind of communication, you avoid the kind of disputes and problems that you run across. I, I recognize what you're talking about. And in, in my work uh, with families over about well, three decades, I suppose, on the philanthropic side, I recognize that different people come into the family and people make different decisions about how to spend their money, how to spend it both uh, on assets and indeed philanthropically. But you're really talking about trust. You're talking about trust in relationships and also implicitly in that, trusted advisors and at Ispahani Advisory we're very lucky to work with a number of people who are referred to us and there's a high level of trust with the people that we work with as a group. So if you're talking to people about organizing their money, organizing their succession planning, who on earth can they trust? How can you figure out who you can trust to talk to about these aspects? Don't trust anyone. Don't trust anyone. And uh, it's not just women that I would say to them, you know, don't trust anyone. I would, you know, I would say that to my daughter. I'd also say it to my son. Don't trust anyone. You start from the point that no one can be trusted. Of course, we need advisors. Uh, this is a complex world. No one has all the answers. We need advisors. But we have to understand that advisors, lawyers, accountants, uh, banks, everyone has conflicts of interest, of course. You know, they're looking to make a living. Women in particular, but everyone in the family needs to be well-educated about how to ask the right questions, how to understand how the advisors are charging, understanding the conflicts of interest, and then you can develop a very trusting and open relationship with your advisors. And good advisors are the ones who are very open about how they charge, about how they work, and they really put their clients' interests first. But to be safe within a family, we need to educate family members and prepare women in the family to really start from the point of realizing it's better to have a view that they don't trust anyone as the starting point. And family businesses, um, there are lots of elements of this area of trust that come into families that are transitioning businesses from one generation to the next. Um, it's one thing when you have mom or dad who's running the family business, they know everything about what's going on. The matriarch or patriarch has their fingers in every pie. When that family business begins to move down the generations, there's less of a personal connection in that younger generation. And we need to prepare everyone, boys and girls, men and women, to really understand their roles. And it's not just the roles of those who are involved in managing the family business, 
we also have to prepare the owners of the family business for their roles. So if your daughter is not going to be actually running the family business, but she's becoming a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer or a professor or whatever it is she's going to be doing, she needs to be prepared for her role as an owner of the business, helping perhaps her sister, who's actually going to be a manager in the business, who needs to be prepared uh, in a different way. And this is part of the work that we do with families around the world. As we've gone through, you've mentioned a case study in relation to this matter, and uh, we're going to include some of those slides with the, with the slides that are available uh, in support of this talk. Did you want to just touch on the case study? I know we haven't got time to go to, into major detail, but it'd be great to have an overview of, of your thinking around that particular family. When we see a case study such as this one, and uh, there's a family tree to help in an understanding of that case study, there's much to learn from looking at real cases in terms of what can go wrong for families around the world. Now, one of the questions that automatically comes up when we look at this case study, when we look at this family tree, when we look at any family situation is where do you begin the process? Where do you start in terms of trying to understand how this family should look at the opportunities to take advantage of possibilities of asset protection and otherwise. My own view is that it's always important to begin by looking at the situation of the existing wealth owner, understanding their situation, their desires, but also the laws in the country in which they may be resident and or citizen of, and as well, of course, the countries in which their assets uh, may be located. Uh, in this case study, we see that Alice is herself not a wealth owner. However, her brother, Edmund, is a wealth owner, and he has in mind benefiting Alice. And she's basically said, well, I trust my brother, I'll leave everything to him. And that's the first thing that I would push back on a little bit. And I'd say to Alice, you have a responsibility as a parent who will eventually benefit your children to really understand what Edmund has in mind and to help him understand that how he handles transferring his assets for your benefit may have a great impact on the younger generation, your own children. So in the example of Alice, if Edmund were to create a trust or if he died, Alice becomes an owner of assets that she doesn't really need and she wants to pass those to her own children. And at that point, there may be another level of inheritance tax depending on the country in which she's living. There may be other issues uh, that arise that perhaps make that not the best approach. So Alice would be much better off having a conversation with her brother and saying, maybe some of the assets that you want to give to me, to Alice from Edmund, perhaps she should say to her brother, maybe as an uncle, it would be better if you pass those assets directly to my children, or you put them into some sort of a trust where I can influence that the assets will pass directly to my children without going through my own ownership. Again, starting at the point of the wealth owner also allows us to look at Edmund's own situation as a wealth owner. And we see he has maybe some growing dementia and issues along that front. He also has a new relationship with a woman named April. And as people get older, they become more and more dependent on the younger person in their relationship, in this case, perhaps April. That may have a real impact on what Alice may end up benefiting and Edmund's intention to benefit his sister and her family.
So again, if Alice doesn't take the chance to have a good conversation with her brother about securing some of the assets that are designed to go to her family branch, that opportunity may be lost as the new relationship with April increases. Now, when we look about women and empowering women, we can't lose sight that April is also potentially a good guy, not necessarily a bad guy. She's the younger person in a new relationship with Edmund. Going into that relationship, there should be an openness and an understanding by April of her own financial situation and what rights she may have in relation to her new um, connection to this family and to Edmund in particular. So we have to look at it from everyone's perspective, but if we're trying to protect Alice as a wealth owner or someone with an interest in the wealth that her brother has, that has as its origin her own parents, uh, she needs to be much more active in the conversation and much more understanding of what she needs to do today to secure rights in favor of the younger generation. Another point in the case study, and when we look at the family tree that is very important, is to look at everything as well next from the perspective of the recipients. We need to look at Evelyn, uh, one of the children of Alice, who keeps her jewelry in a safe deposit box in the United States. She needs to understand that if you own physical assets in a country like the US, same thing applies in a number of other countries, the UK, for example, if you die, even though you may not be living in the United States, because your assets are located there, US estate tax applies. There's a tax on US situs assets. And unlike Americans who get a very big exemption when assets pass from one generation to the next, foreigners do not benefit from that exemption. There's only an exemption of US 60,000. And as a result, if there is a meaningful collection of jewelry in a safe deposit box in California, that is gonna give rise to a very high inheritance tax. Same thing could arise with a collection of classic cars or any other valuables, artworks and others. There are countries, Switzerland for example, where foreigners can keep assets in safe deposit boxes in storage facilities with no exposure to inheritance tax. So understanding how the world works is very important. No one has all the answers, but we need to help Evelyn be in a position to ask the right questions. And when working with families, such as a family in our case study, we want all family members to be able to raise questions and, and understand how they can get guidance from those who might be experts in the different areas in different countries uh, that they work in. In our case study, Evelyn is also someone who has worked as an accountant in a company that has had financial irregularities. Maybe she may be liable to potential lawsuits. She may be exposed to lawsuits that may arise in the future. Would it be good for her uncle Edmund to give her assets directly? Maybe not, because if she receives those assets directly, those assets may be at risk in the event of a lawsuit. If her uncle instead puts the assets in a discretionary trust of which she's only a discretionary beneficiary, that may provide quite a lot of protection in the event of lawsuits. What if her uncle gives her the assets and Evelyn herself puts those assets in a discretionary irrevocable trust? That does not give the same protection 
because she's the one who's transferring the assets in. And this is a very common situation, not just in asset protection, but also in tax planning. It is always better to be a beneficiary of a trust that was created by one of your family members rather than being a beneficiary of a trust that you created yourself. If you're looking at it in terms of asset protection in the event of legal claims, divorce claims, and also how tax laws work all over the world. In this case study, we also have a number of situations where we need to look at the issue of play by the rules of your country or get out of your country. What do I mean by that? The reality is um, we don't have any choice in today's world but to play by the rules of the countries in which we live. But that doesn't mean that wealth and business owners cannot take advantage of mobility, the ability to live in different countries, the ability to have different citizenships. And in our case study, Charles, who is going to be selling his business and having a big payout, he holds a green card. He's subject to tax in the U.S. on a worldwide basis. Uh, he may be smart to get out of the U.S. well before he really ends up selling his company and taking uh, a large profit and being subject to tax on that. Now, in many countries of the world, and the U.S. is one of them, there are circumstances where if you give up citizenship, in his case, if he gives up long-term green card status, he may be subject to an exit tax. He may have to pay tax on the difference between what he invested in that company and what the value of the shares are when he leaves the country. But once he's left, he might be able to avoid tax on any future appreciation in those assets. Countries like Canada, Japan, many others in the world have exit taxes but not every country does. And so understanding which countries do, which countries don't, how those taxes apply is a very important part of navigating uh, these kind of issues uh, within families. So again, this is encouraging that within families there be deep conversations, age appropriate conversations, so that all family members, and particularly the women within families understand they need to understand their own financial situation very well. They need to know how to ask the right questions and they need to know how to navigate an increasingly uh, dangerous world. Phyllis in the case study is running her own business and is over-reliant on her husband in a very, very dangerous way. And uh, again, the fact that you're a successful entrepreneur doesn't mean you can give up the responsibility of really understanding your own situation and how things work. We have a relationship in this case study between Sybil and Etta. And this is a very common situation. We have a relationship where one of the partners in the relationship is coming from a mega wealthy family. If I have a child who's marrying into a very wealthy family, does that mean that my child doesn't need to inherit from me? Um, my own view is first of all, that all parents should start from the basic groundwork of feeling that it is important to treat all your children equally um, unless there's a really, really strong reason to the contrary. The reason I say that is that the smallest differences between children give a long lasting, more than one lifetime, it goes through generations, sense of bad feeling that mom or dad didn't love me. Something that I also say to families that I work with is when one of your children is marrying into a really mega wealthy family, that doesn't mean they don't need protection 
in terms of the assets that may pass from their own parents, albeit that the assets may be of a much smaller volume than the assets of the family in which they're marrying. And the reason this is very important, particularly for women, is a woman needs the financial ability to walk out of her marriage at any point. And what I've said to many of the moms and dads that I've worked with over the years is give your children, particularly the women, the safety of having an assets, which may be in trust, they may be in insurance arrangements that give them the financial freedom to be able to make decisions at any point in their life. And having that financial freedom not only creates better relationships, but it gives a feeling of security and a feeling of happiness. So I hope the case study helps families when they look at it more carefully and they look at the picture of assets. I hope it helps families to initiate discussions about issues relating to prenuptial agreements, understanding the economics of relationships and understanding that you really need to ask the right questions to be able to get the right answers. Thank you, Philip. So you might be thinking, it's 2020, why on earth do we need this? Surely women are empowered in leading roles, taking an active role in their finance. Well, research just last year showed that whilst 85% of women are equally handling day-to-day -day finances with their spouse, making decisions day-to-day -day about household expenses, education, when it comes to long-term financial planning, they said, he takes the lead in all major long-term financial decisions. 85% of women. And you might think that younger women were more engaged, but unfortunately the stats show that they're not. In fact, younger women are more likely to defer responsibility to someone else. If not their spouse, then their brother, their father, somebody else. So it's even more important that people are aware of this and take responsibility for their own finances. And if that's not enough, just the sort of general acceptance of the importance of that, there is evidence of the need to be informed about finances from people who were surveyed, about 77% of women who were surveyed who've been divorced or widowed said that they wish they'd known more about their, their own financial situation and the financial opportunities open to them and are now trying to encourage other women to do this. So what are the ways that we can build our financial empowerment? Well, the first and most obvious one is to talk to your friends, your networks, maybe your family. I'm sure you all know people, women in particular, who are in senior positions in finance houses, in tax, in pension planning. And whilst they can't necessarily advise you formally, they can help you to develop a list of questions that you might like the answers to. So we would counsel that you start to think about the questions that you might want to ask, some of which Philip's referred to in this presentation, some of which you'll have above and beyond this. Build a list of questions and then just start trying to fill in those gaps. And there is quite a lot of formal information available, uh, both online and through talking to other people. There's a very interesting organisation that's recently been set up in Switzerland and the UK by two women, Jude Kelly and Olga Muller. Interestingly, Jude is a long-term champion of women's rights and women's equality and has a very high profile in the cultural and education world uh, globally. She's been, she actually set up something called Women of the World. Um, and their, their organisation provides online advice 
for women, courses, information, and you can join through a membership fee. Similarly, there's something called Female Invest, uh, which runs out of Scandinavia. Um, a good, clear website and was set up by two young women in their 20s who uh, were frustrated about the lack of information about investment, about investment opportunities. Um, and their structure is, again, you become a member, you sign up to online courses and information. So those are just two of the examples of uh, things that you can join, uh, things that you can read about and information that you can get to build your financial knowledge. Of course, you can take the more traditional route and turn to financial advisors, and many say they specialise in advising women. Philip's rule of thumb uh, holds true in this situation as well. Be careful with your trust. Be careful where you place your trust. Uh, but of course, you can uh, seek advice from professional financial advisors. And then the fourth point is uh, just read widely. Um, look, at your, look at your news feeds. Can you adapt them so you pick up some of the financial information as well? Can you adapt them so you're perhaps following particular authors and particular writers? Uh, one of the stories that I really enjoyed in uh, thinking about talking to you today was an article by a woman called Paulette Powhack who advises, she was a US writer, and she advised that every woman should have what we might politely call a get out fund um, and that everybody should have that uh, with, no matter how uh, much in love you are and how developed your joint finances are or whether you're the primary income earner or not you should have a fund that just is there for the just in case moments. Well I hope Philip and I have given you some good ideas and some elements to think about in relation to managing your wealth. There is no doubt that women hold a vast amount of wealth today in the world and at the same time, the world is changing in terms of economy, technology, law, and that's increasing the complexity of wealth planning. Perhaps the largest growth in women's wealth will come from inheritance and wealth transfers, but no matter whether you've created the wealth yourself or you're a potential beneficiary of wealth, everyone has similar questions and responsibilities in regarding to protecting and thinking about the succession of family assets. Your perspective may vary depending on whether you're a mother, a daughter, a grandmother, a wife, the creator of wealth yourself, but there are common threads through all of the issues we've touched on today. On behalf of Ispahani Advisory, thank you. Thank you for that fascinating discussion, Caroline and Philip. And that brings us to the end of this video series in our Phenomenal Family series. Thank you for joining us. Don't miss our next session when Miguel Lopez de Salinas Gomez will be back to give us his insights into high-performing governance for successful family enterprises. Goodbye. Until then. <laughs>